Hey. Oh, hey, Juliet. <laughs> you right, right before I even got to welcome to the DC Yoga Podcast. Oh, I jumped the gun. That's okay. <laughs> this is part of our shtick. It is. It is. Yeah. Uh, for those just joining us, welcome to the DC Yoga Podcast. Hi, uh, I'm your host, Chris Parkinson. Uh, you just heard from our first guest, uh, Julia Romano. Hi. Hi again. Ah, now she doesn't want to talk. <laughs> Clamming up. Uh, Julia is the owner of uh, Yoga Noma, a uh, little studio in the uh, Noma section of D.C. Um, she's also the founder of Empower Yoga and Wellness, Washington, D.C.-based yoga, meditation, and yoga as therapy practice. Leader of yoga and meditation retreats around the world, master's level certified yoga therapist. Julia believes in yoga as therapy for the mind, body, and spirit. Yoga is a process of continual refinement. Poses are not achieved, but rather infinite opportunities joyfully explored. What a wonderful way to talk about yoga. Sounds pretty good to me. I mean, I wrote it, but it still sounds pretty good to me. Yeah. yeah. Um, her, two, uh, her two websites are uh, www.empoweryogatherapy.com and www.yoganoma.com. Um, so, I guess, we, uh, I guess we should probably begin with uh, our relationship. Yeah, that's a good place to start. Yeah, so Julia and I uh, have been uh, yoga partners, I guess. For about five years now, almost almost five years. Yeah, yeah. Um, Julia was a, uh, a yoga teacher here in D.C., and I was a just graduated yoga teacher back in 2013 when uh, we met. Uh, should we tell the real story? Or should we tell the? Should we tell the? I think people should join us for our teacher training to hear the re- real story. We're over drinks. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. So we, we met. I think that's a great idea. So uh, we met um, down at a, uh, a yoga teacher training in Tulum, Mexico, with uh, Brian Kest, who is a teacher out in Santa Monica, California, and uh, as he says, the creator of Power Yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was a fifty-hour yoga teacher training, and we both had an amazing time, and kind of. Saw a little bit of uh, commonality between the way we thought about yoga and, and Brian's influence and decided that we would try to bring that sort of influence to our own teaching here in D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, in ways that uh, we thought D.C. was was sort of lacking. Um, and uh, maybe we should start there. Uh, that was your, how many, how many teacher trainings have you done? Goodness. Well, I started off with a 200-hour training in India. Uh, kind of an accident. Fell into it because I sustained my first yoga injury, tore a hamstring in an Ashtanga practice in Mysore, and uh, took a month off, soaked in the waters of Goa, went back to Mysore, and realized that I couldn't continue an uh, Ashtanga practice the way I'd been engaging in it, and so decided to join a 200-hour teacher training in the Hatha style of yoga with a teacher who studied under Iyengar, but did not call himself an Iyengar teacher because he didn't support the mm, heavy use of blocks and other props that people who are certified Iyengar teachers use. And um, it was a 30-day intensive. It was fantastic. That's and crazy. So did you, you were like doing yoga from 8 a.m. until like 8 p.m. every day? From like 5, p.m. To 5 a.m. till 9 p.m. Yeah, we'd take the hottest hours of the afternoon off. And uh, and it was all just, it was all asana practice or was it, was there? No, there was philosophy. There was, it was, um, it was a, it was a comfortable mix. You know, 
Yoga Alliance doesn't actually fly to India to check out the teacher training. So (laughs) when people ask me about the quality of it, I always say, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't one that I'd recommend necessarily, but it was what I needed at the time. It was enough of a break. It was enough of an introduction. And when I came back to D.C., a little lost because I just finished a master's in international relations, but knew that I didn't want to do the work that that master's had set me up for, i.e. State Department, World Bank, DOD, that kind of thing, I... uh decided instead to try my hand at slanging drinks at the Tabard Inn. <laughs> Cocktailed and bartended bar back there for a little while. And I also started to teach yoga. I had a, a gift from Jasmine Shirazi, who runs Yoga District. And, and you were from the bar scene before, and she said, hey, you want to teach a noon class on like a Tuesday? That's a pretty easy way to get your first gig. <laughs> yeah. So you, you actually never auditioned. I never for auditioned. Your, that's fantastic. I actually just auditioned for the first time. Near, you, and, and let me ask you this. Did you have any nerves auditioning? Yeah. 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 I just auditioned for the first time in Baltimore. Uh, and I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> I really didn't. Yeah. For those of you who are listening and don't understand kind of the way the, the yoga business works, uh, one of the things you have to do if you want to work at a studio is you have to audition for the owner usually uh, and that can take the the shape of, of many things and usually it's a it's either a, a class you have to teach that the owner takes or that you have to teach a seven to ten minute segment and so you really have a very limited amount of time to show kind of what teacher you are to the peer, peer people who are going to be hiring you sort of almost almost completely opposite as you would do a, a job interview because the job interview is so much based on your experience and so much based on your resume and so much based on your references um, that the yoga in a way is the, the yoga audition process in a way is, is much purer in a sense in that they get to see exactly who you are when you teach a yoga class but also very limited in a sense because you have a, a very small sliver of time to show what you're made of yeah 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 it was it, I mean I'm it was a fine. I, I got the job, right? <laughs> so it obviously went pretty well. But I, um, at my own studio, I don't hold auditions. How do you do it? I do it through subbing. I'll just have some a new teacher potentially. First of all, I'll ask them to tell me over email what brought you to yoga. Tell me about your relationship to yoga. And if they say, oh, I study uh, hot vinyasa flow and I like a good workout and they mention nothing of the spirit, I may or may not invite right. them to the sub list. I've kind of gone both ways on that. But then I'll have them just sub a class because I want to get real feedback. I don't like the idea of teaching yoga, which is essentially, as I consider it, contract, a spiritual contract. I don't like the idea of it being an audition, being it being so forced. I don't want to be performed for. Uh, and that's kind of my way of 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 running a yoga studio is is very different than most. I recognize that, and I, but it is kind of it means that some people have subbed classes pretty poorly, and I've had to deal with that and ended up giving students free classes to make up for it. Sure, but I mean that's that's a part of business, right? Yeah. And I mean, you'd rather make those, those genuine, honest, um, have those genuine, honest experiences than maybe a create a space where everybody teaches just like you do. Right. That's exactly. I mean, so my studio has a lot of different 
teachers, a lot of funny, silly teachers, a lot of very serious, asana teachers. It's a nice amalgamation of people, personality, uh, path. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty genuine space. So when you started, let's let's rewind a little bit. When you started teaching them that noon class at, at Yoga District, where were you? Which which Yoga District were you at? I was at the 14th Street Yoga District, and it was not in the nice condition that it is now. <laughs> yeah, if you can call it a nice condition now. <laughs> well, it's definitely been, and there was no third floor. So we just had the second floor, the front and the back room. I was in the back room, and I remember one epic. I actually was subbing a 6.30 a.m. class, and there was a leak in the back area where there was glass doors that entered into this kind of patio, small patio area. And the water just poured in to the studio like a monsoon. We just kept on practicing that. <laughs> we just kept on doing it. Just go for it. Yeah. It, was, it was definitely um, like makeshift, and it was wonderful. I really enjoyed working, especially those early days. How would you, when you first started teaching, what, what kind of, if we can call it a style, what were, you, what were you teaching back then? I was teaching the sequence that I was taught to teach, the master sequence that I was taught to teach. In India. In India, the Hatha Vinyasa kind of in, mm-hmm. inspired sequence. Uh, and I don't know where I got the stuff that came from that place, but it came, I think, from a place beyond me. Uh, and that, you know, that sounds pretty hippy-dippy, and, and maybe maybe it is, but I, I, I all of a sudden, I went from teaching, I remember the day in my apartment in Glover Park, practicing the sequence and realizing that I could go somewhere else with it. I remember this specific moment where I thought, oh, wait a minute, I don't have to do ABC. I could do A, B, D, F, return to C. I mean, it, like all of a sudden it became more three-dimensional and more organic, but it was because it was in my bones. So I understood directions it could go in. I understood uh, that it had shape and life. It's a pretty liberating experience when you realize you can yeah. you can go outside that box that you mm-hmm. uh, subconsciously have set around what you think yeah. you know yoga sequence should be. Right, totally. Right. Yeah, and I, I think when the physical practice opened up for me in that way, in terms of teaching it, the kind of the psycho emotional spiritual side of it did too. I mean, more of me got to come through, and I, you know, I I became a teacher of the practice. As I practiced teaching, I mean, it, it developed, like, I didn't, I didn't know. At that point, I still thought I was going to go, and I did go back to school. I mean, I've since completed two more master's. Um, but I was applying for PhDs, IDs in psychology. So I was pretty sure I was going to go back into academia and probably put the whole yoga thing aside. And then, and then what happened? You were kind of, you know, this, this noon class just took off. And, <laughs> it actually and, and, did. And Jasmine was like, oh, I want you to teach it a 6 p.m. class on That's Thursdays, exactly and I want you to teach Tuesdays. weekends. And Yeah. I, I just, feedback was good. I don't really remember hearing any of the feedback, uh, but apparently it was good. And I started, I, I subbed a 6 p.m. class, 6.30 p.m. class on Tuesdays at the DuPont location. And, uh, Feedback was excellent. I took it over for a wonderful yoga teacher named Amy Dara. I took over her, her time slot there. And then a Saturday morning class on 8th Street. And it, was, it, just, it just exploded. 
And, and so, and so, was there a, a specific point where you then were like, "Okay, I'm just going to teach yoga." So I started a, a, a PsyD in psychology, which is like the practical degree of psychology mm-hmm. rather than a PhD. Uh, and I was concurrently teaching yoga and also exploring mindfulness, meditation. I'd done a vipassana retreat in India. And how 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 long after your your initial two hundred hour did you do that vipassana, which we'll get to in a, in a couple of minutes here? No, I did that before the vipassana. I mean, I sorry, I did that before the the two hundred. Oh hour. wow! So you did the meditation before you even did the yeah. training. Oh yeah, I actually went to vipassana. Uh, two days after I arrived in India, I just went straight to the center and he got prairie. But we can circle back to that. But it, so in the I guess in, in about those two years between coming back to DC three years between coming back to D.C. and starting the PsyD. I also did a training with Dharma Mitra up in New York, another 200-hour training. I never got certified because it involved a bunch of requirements that I didn't really care to do. <laughs> Yoga rebel. Right. And it just didn't really matter. You know, it didn't, like, I, I think Dharma's a great guy and I enjoyed learning from him, but it didn't call to me to, there, there was nothing that I felt um, there was there was no benefit derived from getting a certification at that point. And there was, and that training was a little bit different than your previous training. Yeah, nine day intensive in New York City. Started pretty early, ended pretty late. A lot of asana, but also a lot of philosophy. Uh, and you you were one of how many people taking that training? Oh my God, I don't even remember. It was, I mean, I don't I, like 50, 60 people oh in yeah. that training. Oh yeah, it was extremely large i just have this image in my head of of you know if you've ever seen the pictures of uh of um of uh hot yoga and uh how um how they do their their trainings you know it's just bikram sitting up on a stage like doing postures in front of 200 people and and sort of like learning yeah you know yeah this was a little bit more hands-on was it okay yeah um we had a lot of time with the Dharma's master teachers, that's what they're called. But again, I mean, it didn't, it was good, good information. I think, as I said, I think, I think that there's a lot of good spirit there. But I'm not really so into the guru thing. Right. It just doesn't, it doesn't call to me. It doesn't, uh, nothing in me feels enlivened by the idea of having a guru. So, um, yeah, so I, I did it just teaching a lot was a lot of practice and learning for me, the process of teaching. And so you had done these, you know, you'd done the Vipassana, you'd done the two teacher trainings, and then you're in this practical um, training as well. And mm-hmm. what then was like, okay, I'm just going to drop this and then just be a yoga teacher? Or was it that simple? Or was it more evolved than that? No, it was, it was pretty... Um, I remember the moment that I decided to not continue getting a doctorate in psychology. I was about to finish my second year, so I was about to have a master's in psychology. It was March, uh, and I March of 2013. I was standing on the wall of the old fort in Puerto Rico at 2 a.m., <laughs> and uh, I'd climbed up there in a long maxi dress and was. Uh, a few drinks in and um i felt so alive i felt so alive i felt so in, in 
so so totally connected to everything and it wasn't the booze talking it was the life in me talking and I decided to quit because I I realized that I was more alive in that moment that I'd than I'd been in the past two years of being in the classroom uh, because the work that I wanted to do was not there in that program I didn't want to deal with insurance companies more than people. I didn't want to diagnose people for the sake of insurance companies. I didn't I knew that I wanted to work with the mind and but also the body because it it also clicked that the most alive I felt in those 2 years happened in the space of a yoga room. Happened teaching, happened practicing. And the most good that I felt that I was doing was also in the yoga room. And so a few weeks after that I was thumbing through the pages of Yoga Journal, which I never read, so it was rare. I think I was about to recycle it, and I felt that I owed it to the piece of paper that it was printed on to at least look at well, it. Well, let's, all right, let's, let's hold on there for a second, because I, I, I did have a Yoga Journal subscription for, for a very long time. It and comes with the insurance. It does, and, and i got to say, there is some surprisingly good stuff in there sometimes. So one of the it good is not things. just advertisements <laughs> and like skinny women and you Are know, you being yoga sponsored pants. by Yoga Journal? And we're not being sponsored by <laughs> Yoga Journal here. So I, I, I think actually think that it's evolved a lot. But particularly then, I didn't read it. I mean, I usually just tossed it in the recycling bin. Right. You know why? Because I don't like reading something, particularly something that's connected to the practice of yoga. And this is something that I'm chewing on a lot lately in particular, having just come back from Los Angeles. That constant pull toward consumption, that po- constant reminder of not enoughness as compared to something else, like an, a, a preordained image of beauty or fitness. And Yoga Journal kind of embodied that, right? You need this new pair of pants. You need this new yoga mat. You're never going to be that skinny. Like th- That's the way my mind, programmed in that way, communicated with me when I'd look at the pages. And I just didn't feel like always fighting that, you know? Yeah, and there's, a, there's an interesting... So uh, at Vita, um, we, uh, we do some... Uh, we do a lot of advertising at Vita. And uh, one of the things that we found is that when we make... Uh, those who don't know, Vita is a gym here in D.C. Um, if you're in the Virginia, Maryland area and you haven't been to a Vita yet. Uh, and we have, shall we say, um, a very urban and chic look <laughs> to our Vitas. Um, and uh, it is very um, body um, body aware. Like There's a lot of awareness to bodies, like aesthetically, uh, in, our, in our advertising. And we actually have done a, a lot of advertising with uh, real members and uh, real body types, quote-unquote real body types, people, people who look like everyday people. Um, and in DC, in which DC. is one of the fittest cities. In the well, country. no, no, no. I mean, we actually like we actually have done advertisements with you know people of all sizes and shapes, mm. uh, and we've we've found that um, that the that the results of those advertisements uh, are not as good as the advertisements that we have when we put on the you know the models and mm-hmm. the and the you know the sweaty hot you know young mm-hmm. members, yeah. and that people respond to those those advertisements more, and so. In my own mind, this is more of a systemic cultural thing than yeah. it is like a, um, you know, a, a, a corporate thing. In other words, the corporations, I think, are just are res- responding, are responding to-, to how we act. And, and, you know, we can get into the debate about, you know, 
was right. it which court, came first? Which came first, right? Yeah. Um, but I but I think in a certain sense, you know, things people. I mean, and even it, it's the same thing in news media, right? When you have CNN, you have Fox, and all these other, you know, trying to walk that line between giving people information that they actually need in a certain ethical sense and having to appeal to the largest amount of people to get that information out. You have yeah. to walk that line, and it's it's not always easy. No, it's um, a big conversation. A, yeah, but that's why I think that that I mean. That's why. That's why ultimately, some of us are inspired to turn within, right? Because that conversation is big and, and present. And I think ultimately, many of us find that what we're seeking doesn't exist in the pages of Yoga Journal, or uh, even, you know, even even getting in those great workouts every week. And that's a, that's an aspect of it. But you can get in a solid week of great workouts, go home to your attractive spouse, kiss your beautiful baby, and still feel something lacking. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's I think that's one of the reasons why we have why we have yoga. Right. And there's there is an emptiness that's still inside there. You won't you're not gonna find right meaningful um, you're not gonna find meaning, a lot of meaning in something externally. Right. Right? That you can't you can get it and that can give you ideas, but ultimately you can't hold on to it because it's not yours. Right. That has to come from inside. You can't you can't just get something you saw on CNN and say, you know what, I believe that and I'm gonna make that that's my Rosetta Stone right there. I'm gonna live my life according to the Fox News or CNN or Yoga Journal. But people do. People try, right. I would say. I would yeah. say people try and I think the world is full of people failing miserably trying to do that. <laughs> Good, right? Because then that gets you to the place of eventually looking in the mirror, which is uh, the most productive search yet for me, anyway, you know, in my experience. Uh, the, the, the work for the PsyD was unfulfilling in large part because it negated the body so much. And it's interesting that the body, which can uh, really get us pretty confused, can also be a really wonderful, well-lit space to do some of the work when the mind is too crowded. So the work in the society, in, in the psychology doctorate, just proved so unfulfilling because it negated this essential part of me, right? I mean, we've all probably heard the adage that we're, we're spiritual beings having a, a human experience. Yeah. And I, I mean, I really feel like that's when, I believe that in my core, uh, that we're, we're using these shapes as vehicles for the spirit. And that, but that doesn't mean that they're meaningless. Right. It means that they're useful to do that work. So the connections that I was making in the yoga space for myself, for students, I mean, when a student comes up to you after a class and says, I just had a totally groundbreaking experience. I felt real love for myself for the first time ever. That's hard to ignore, <laughs> right? Now, the, the, the important piece there, and I've wavered in this, is to not attach my own sense of self mm -hmm. to my students' quote-unquote success in that arena because ultimately it doesn't have anything to do with me. At this point in my, in my work, my work is helping remind myself <laughs> that it's about the work, right? And letting myself become a conduit for the work, getting, getting out of my own way. Like, I know, I know a lot now. And so my work, and we can fast forward 
to uh yeah please do i mean i think that's a good good segue into what you're doing now because what you're doing now is a little different than or at least the majority of what you do is a lot different than teaching to a room full of people practicing calisthenics right right so i I actually now only occasionally teach uh group yoga asana classes um but so that what i saw in yoga journal in 2013 not long after that momentous moment in in uh, puerto rico uh, man, that was beautiful. Have you ever been to the old fort in Puerto Rico? In the I old haven't. City I mean, are we, we're, we're veering over into attachment oh, here, aren't we? Jeez, that was just so gorgeous. No, I feel it in my bones. Like, it's a part of it settled into me cellularly. Uh, you're right on the ocean. It's just a wash of stars in the sky. It's just so, so exciting. Um, in any case, uh, so Yoga Journal... The ad that I saw was for the Maryland University of Integrative Health for a master's of science in yoga therapy. And I thought, a master's? I can do that. (laughs) I already did two of them. What's one more master's degree? And uh, I applied, finding out that I was applying to be part of the first cohort in yoga therapy of the first program, the first master's of science program. So essentially a pioneer of that program. That's what they called us, the first people. Um, and uh, two years later, I graduated as a master's of science level yoga therapist, certified yoga therapist. Um, and I've been doing so, that work so ever since. this is really a case of, of you uh, looking in the, the last place possible <laughs> that you would expect to find your future. Yeah. Yoga journal. Yeah. And you found a, the most amazing experience. Oh, man. Life has surprised me. So maybe yoga so journal isn't that bad. No, no, no. But it was also my relationship to Yoga Journal. Right. Right. I mean, that I could, I probably was able to see that because my mind wasn't clouded by my own issues around self-image that are, that come up when I stare at somebody in, in Yoga Journal doing a, putting their leg band there, you know. But, um, no, life, life hands you all sorts of wonderful lessons in, uh, in funny places. My, the woman I call my teacher, uh, I met her after coming back from India, looking for a teacher, kind of unconsciously. I don't know that I consciously went there saying I'm looking for a yoga teacher, but so I come back from India, not having found someone I felt comfortable calling a teacher, except to say that, sure, everybody's a teacher, right, if you'd like. Every experience can teach you something. Um, about two weeks later, I went to a dinner. Friends of my mother's of all things and my mom's a great lady but still she is a great lady i I love your mother and your father for that matter they're both good people both both amazing but it was still random that that was the connection and we were having dinner and she said um i'd like you to come and meet my teacher who's a divine feminine spiritual tradition and i walked into the room a shakti goddess uh kind of kind of in the in the form of a, a six foot four french irish woman Fantastic. Right. So that's the irony of it is that I went looking for men in golden robes and came all the way back home to attend a class with a woman who could be my aunt. <laughs> and this was and this was a was this a, was an asana class? Was this at a studio oh, or was no, this a, no, no. where was where was this? This was at a woman's apartment. It was an introduction to their form of meditation and also to the tradition in general. And um, it's 
it's not an asana class, although there is a, there, it's not an asana practice, although there are physical elements to the tradition because their tradition is one of warriorship. But, uh, can we put a name to this or do we not want to do that? Uh, people can contact me if they'd like to okay. know more about it. Okay. Yeah. And they, I'll, I'll communicate why I'm being a little guarded about it. Um, uh, if people want to reach out, but I, sure. it's, it's a it's it's a group of women who are among the most conscious, loving, accepting. That's what happens when you're conscious. <laughs> um, people I've ever known. I mean, it's a true sisterhood. And so when I refer to my tradition, that's the tradition that I'm talking about. And it's definitely not an asana practice. It's fantastic the way that can create a, a sense of security within you. I'm 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 yeah. feeling that from you. Whenever you talk about it, I always I always sense there's a there's a sense of a, a root there. Yeah. That that is so strong that you can you can continually go back to it when you feel doubt mm -hmm. um, and think, oh, I have this and I know this is strong and I can lean on this. Uh, and while it may not be able to guide me in, in a lot of situations, um, it can provide stability mm -hmm. in a, in a world where. Yeah, you know it can seem like chaos, especially if you're over the age of thirty. Absolutely, no, it does feel good to have something to which I feel connected and to which I've, I I I feel connected lifetimes. I mean, when I walked into that room, I I met women who I've known before. You know, there's surety in that. Like Chris, we've probably met before. You know what I mean? Like we we get along pretty easily, pretty immediately. I feel like we've done this before. The same in our first rodeo. No. And and in that same way, just to, to meet a whole room full of women like who had all been pulled back to this place. Pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> pretty sweet. And it remains pretty pretty sweet. I mean I feel when I'm in that space so connected. And that's the place where my yoga therapy practice comes from, even though it's not a yoga tradition. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's still the place where my yoga therapeutic work comes from. It comes from that place of love and compassion. It comes from that place of honor. It comes from that place of helping others blossom to the degree and the extent that I have blossomed. I mean, that's, that's kind of, my tradition has a saying that you teach what you embody and you embody what you teach. And that remains my guide as a therapist. I don't try to teach my clients or, or help them find their own teachings, hone their own tools in any ways that I haven't already done myself that feels disingenuous. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, uh, at least from my own teaching perspective, one of the things that I try to do is, is point out to, to students how so much of our, our personalities are a product of our reactions mm -hmm. to what the world has given us. Mm -hmm. And that your yoga practice is a practice of trying to see those reactions and strip away those reactions to find what's underneath and that what's underneath is actually you. Mm. And so stepping out of that, that cage that we put ourselves in through our reactivity um, and acceptance of a lot of things that when we're free finally, we realize we shouldn't have accepted in the first place, but because we were too young or we were too ignorant, you know, mm. we did so, so, so freely. Um, and I think that's a real, real root of what yoga actually is, mm -hmm. is, is trying to be present enough 
to see who you really are. And I don't think there's too many yoga traditions that would argue that, that that's not the purpose of yoga. Yeah. Right? That, that, that it is a big purpose. And, and not only yoga, but spirituality in, in general. I mean, mm-hmm. we could talk about uh, Western spiritualities um, and other Eastern spiritualities where uh, that, is, that is at the core. Is, is, All roads lead. Yeah. You have a quote that you say a lot. The wise call it. Yeah, the truth is one and the wise call it by many names. Mm-hmm. From the Rig Veda, it's one of my favorite quotes. Mm-hmm. I think it's absolutely true that um, that wisdom comes in, in, in many ways. And if for no other reason, because we all speak different languages. And mm-hmm. so we all say it in different ways. But we're all sort of meaning the same thing. Uh, at our, I think once you become a, a real mature um, spiritual person, and, and that's not to denigrate people who are ignorant. Ignorance, the way I use it, is not a term of derision. It just it literally means ignorance. It means you're not aware of certain things. Um, and it's the one, one of the great ills of our society is each person's um, maybe unwillingness to wrestle with ignorance, uh, to take the easy way out and to be reactive um, to point fingers to other people instead of using that determination to do the work themselves on the inside, which could be so much more beneficial and has for me. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's where, I mean, that, that's the basis for our capacity to share it. I, mean, one, I think it, it comes down pretty powerfully to something that is uh, a part of my tradition, which is the source of compassion, where real, real compassion comes from is the acknowledgement that everyone is doing the best they can given the amount of information that they have about themselves and others in any given moment. And it's more than just what I know about myself. Julia is somebody who relates to this modern world. But it's also about what I understand about myself as a spiritual being. It's my relationship to myself as someone who's been here before, who's learned lessons before. When I understand, when, I, when I'm able to sit in this space of understanding of, of this important idea that I am not a murderer in this lifetime because I've been a murderer before, right? That's a lesson that I learned. If, if the whole purpose of being alive is to learn how to be more compassionate, more present, and I've, the, the extent to which I've learned that lesson teaches me that I do not want to needlessly take another life. It gives me a hell of a lot of compassion for the person who continues to act and behave in, in a way that I don't understand or that I might otherwise condemn. Right? I'm not doing those things because I've done them. That's, that, that becomes the source of my compassion. And it also means that we can begin to distill the doer from the act. And this is pretty pervasive in many, many you know, traditions, concepts, that you can, you can distinguish the, the person from their behavior, from their action. And you can forgive the doer, but not the deed. Right. right. And you can learn from the deed. That doer and the person who maybe it's been upon can both learn from it. And that's the whole beautiful point. Yeah. So what the hell does this have to do with teaching yoga asana? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, there, 
this is one of the reasons why we 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 started this this uh, yoga podcast was to kind of provide a forum for um, a talk about the many faces of yoga and not just the postural practice, not just the asana, mm-hmm. to provide students and teachers and people interested in yoga an opportunity to really learn about all the different facets of yoga. Um, what we don't really have time for in a yoga studio. Right. I mean, this is one of the sort of the, the tragedies of, and it kind of ties into what we were talking about before, about needing to find something marketable at the same time providing truth. Um, in that yoga studios, I mean, I think if you talked to a bunch of yoga studio owners and a bunch of yoga teachers, they'd like nothing better than to start every class with you know, meditation or pranayama or breathing uh, and do you know, four or five or ten yoga asanas uh, and then end with a you know meditation or a, a dharma talk and you know I think if people had their druthers that's the way they would actually probably teach a yoga class but because of the demands of the market at least as we see it in DC and this is one of the other reasons why why I started this podcast was to see if we can frame a new conversation about yoga in DC and see if we can maybe can move it in a different direction than uh, just a whole bunch of studios teaching you know power flow vinyasa classes. I think we would all we would all have that 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 sweet you know 75 90 minute class where we'd have all the aspects of yoga woven in, but because of the demands of the marketplace and the expectations of a lot of people, we, we don't have that, and so we don't have the time uh, to talk about these really important topics. Yeah, and, I mean, and yet, ironically, my classes that used to pack out when I was teaching, uh, I'd spend 10 solid minutes, sometimes 15, doing a dharma talk in the beginning of the class. I'd have to look at the clock and say, oh, shit. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's, it is. It I, I've, is. Just, I've just burned 15 minutes, but I needed yeah. to say that. I needed to say before we begin moving today, let's see if everyone in the room can make a really honest effort to practice compassion. Let's just see if we can do it. Let, because let's talk about the alternatives, right? What, you spend the next 75 minutes judging yourself and walk out of here? More pissed off than when you came in? <laughs> or, 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 or even worse living in the unfortunate illusion that you're better than the person next to you because you did the headstand, you know? So I, I made it a point, and I've, the, some, a lot of the feedback that I've gotten from students, I mean, I, obviously the sample size is relative <laughs> to who's giving me the feedback, but the, the feedback is that that's the piece of the class that they came for. And the movement was part of what got it into, into their bones. But I felt like I was doing a disservice to my students if I didn't spend a chunk of the time that they paid for reminding them that this practice could be, if they chose to make it, could be an opportunity to practice profound compassion, love, acceptance, presence. Or it could be an opportunity to practice judgment, vanity, ego, right? And that the choice is the students to make. I mean, that is so empowering, right? That, that, it's no, no surprise that we named our joint business Empower Yoga, right? right. I named my, my uh, yoga therapy business Empower Yoga Therapy because the, the, the purpose, my purpose as a yoga therapist ultimately is to make myself irrelevant Ultimately, I'm trying to teach, 
trying to give my clients the opportunity to learn that they contain within themselves in every moment the ease and the peace that they're seeking outside of themselves. Yeah, and I think that's the, for me anyway, that's the real uh, joy in teaching yoga is not watching students come in. Well, certainly, it's fun to watch a student come in who can't touch their toes. And then (laughs) six you know, weeks, six yeah. months later, they can touch their toes and they have a big smile on their face. Yeah. That is that is super joyful. But, if anything, but that's but that's yeah. not why I do it. No. Right. What's super joyful for me is to see people come in uh, and be able to create a space where people feel like they can be themselves without the pressures and expectations that they put on themselves. Right. To create a space where they feel they can be free, and then get them to wonder, hey, if I can do this on my own for an hour in Chris's class, why can't I do this for an hour right before bedtime? Mm -hmm. Why can't I do this for an hour at lunchtime? And maybe if I can do it for an hour at lunchtime, why can't I do it for an hour uh, after work or before work? In fact, why can't I do this every hour of the day? Mm -hmm. Why Why do I just give myself this one hour with Chris? Why can't I do that for myself all the time? Yeah. And that's that's the power right there that, that I'm hoping students will, will find on their own because one of the things that I've found in my life is that the the one sure way to get people not to do what you want them to do is to tell them exactly what you want them to do. <laughs> well, I've people always... just People just reactively just, just don't want to listen to any... If you tell somebody to do something, they'll just reactively say, no, fuck yourself. I do have that anti-authoritarian... Sure, we're Americans. That's but, what we do. <laughs> but I, but I will say that I think that's why you give people a choice. Exactly. Like you, like this, this. These are your options, and you're making these choices every single moment, every single time. You choose to hold on to the anger and the frustration that someone else is giving you. You're making a choice to carry that around. Right. Like the guy who cut you off in traffic and then flicked you off and then, you know, whatever. And you're carrying around that for the rest of the day. That's a choice. Right? It doesn't mean that it's easy to let go of. And in fact, that's where a physical practice can be so useful. It's helping us actually metabolize some of the, the stress hormone that comes up when we come into a, an altercation. We have an, you know, some sort of conflict that generates actual physiological responses to the stress. That's where a physical practice can really help you metabolize some of that. But it's yours to engage in that physical practice. You know, maybe you don't have a, a, a yoga class available to you after a, a, a bad work meeting, but you do have a walk around the block. You know, you can do something physical. The point is that you can make a choice. You can always make a choice. And I, I, I don't, I don't want to uh, go go too deep into this because it's it's a big topic and it's it's, it's pretty hard to wrestle with in a short time, but when I hear about, for example, uh, the suicide rate in the country just exploding, and I think, how many people don't know that they can make a choice? I'm not talking about the kind of neurological like the brain disorders that need some sort of medical intervention. Those certainly exist. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I've known quite a few folks in my life who have decided to end their own lives. Because what it, my sense, obviously you don't know what's going into anybody's choices, my sense is that they felt that they didn't have a choice. 
And when you're in those deep, deep depressions, what I heard one woman call music in the minor key. I just love that as an image or a, a sense feeling of depression. It can feel like you don't, right? But that's why we have community to help remind us that there is another side to it. Right? There is something on the other side of that wall. But my, the, what, what really strikes me as the two, two huge issues that we face Wonderfully, these are two things that a concerted practice of yoga can give you. Is one, this illusion that we don't have a choice over our own responses to life's stimuli. And two, that we're separate from each other. So those two things combined, the illusion of separation combined with the illusion of powerlessness. That's a really, really hard combination. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I think that when we talk about not having a choice, a lot of that also is bound up in the experiences you've had in the past mm -hmm. and focusing so much on the past that in a sense, it seems impossible to start over. Mm -hmm. And so that there is only one logical conclusion based on what you have seen Gone, come before, right. and that's all. That's all embedded in your mind, mm -hmm. and it's so hard to get out of that trap. Yeah, it it's sure so is. So hard. And and the phenomenal antidote for that, and this is actually being validated now by really excellent research by people like Bessel van der Kolk. Uh, present, getting present, getting present with your breath, getting present with your body, is a way to short circuit that neural network that wants to take you into the past, wants to channel everything through the fear response, through the amygdala, getting present, cultivating the agency of the prefrontal cortex through a meditative act can actually get us out of that past state. And that is asana practice when it is paired with conscious intention. So this, I mean, that's, that's really the underpinning of my teaching is a physical practice paired with conscious intention. Because just like we've been talking about, a physical practice paired with unconscious intention can get you into the same rut that you went into the studio with, went into your practice with. Right? But a physical practice paired with conscious intention. And that means that that's something, once, once you gain that, recognition you can do it anywhere you can do it with anything i'm gonna i'm gonna make my bologna sandwich <laughs> with love and compassion mm -hmm. right i'm gonna forgive myself for having a bologna sandwich i'm gonna i'm gonna acknowledge it nourishing me yeah i mean we we, we uh i'm sure our students will make fun of well at least me anyway they probably won't make fun of you but we say it an awful lot that uh that your mind is a muscle Mm -hmm. And that if you want to retrain your mind from being reactive, then you need to train it to be active. You need to train it, in a sense, by using your muscles, right. like compassion and love. And so when you do make a bologna sandwich with compassion and love, you're reinforcing that in your mind. And right. so in the future, you're more likely to be loving and compassionate than you are to be um, angry and resentful. Yeah. Um, it, really, it really does work that way. In a, and, um, you know, before... Uh, um, we are sort of running out of time, but 
wanted to maybe touch on. You, mes- you mentioned Bessel van der Kolk. Um, one of the things that we, we do want to do here is uh, try to broaden people's awareness or at least uh, access to information uh, about yoga and about um, about uh, everything, I guess, that we've been talking about. Is there some other resources that you you generally go to? Are there websites, are there podcasts, are there, are there books, are there authors that you really find uh, inspirational or that you kind of look to or that you have looked to in the past that, that really helped you along the way, that have been, been guideposts for you on your journey? Oh, man. Uh if people don't know it... I mean, assuming that we don't have, you know, 10 days to go to a Vipassana right. retreat. <laughs> right. So, yeah. I mean, Vipassana is definitely a pretty incisive tool. At the time that I did Vipassana, before I met my teacher and, and really got into contact with consciousness, but at the time that I first did Vipassana, it was the most powerful experience of my life. Like a jackhammer. Like other... Meditative practices have been like a, a hand chisel, you know, <laughs> just like tapping away. And Vipassana was just right, whew, kind of violently in there, like really powerful. So if someone does have 10 days and wants to really deconstruct uh, the, the, the wall, the facade, the whatever it is. The illusion. The illusion. That's a pretty darn good way. Now I do I do have some some pretty practical questions about about Vipassana. <laughs> sure. I'm wondering about doing it myself sometime mm-hmm. soon. When you're done, so I'm I'm a, I'm a former, uh, should we say, athlete? Because I still am an athlete. <laughs> I see your, you I see things, your Instagram. When you do things <laughs> when you do things like marathons and half marathons and triathlons, mm-hmm. when you're done. Usually say things like, "I couldn't have gone a mile more," like, or, "God, I'm glad that's over." Yeah. Like, like on your eleventh day, were you like, "I couldn't have done that one more day," or were you like, "Yeah, I'm good. I could probably hang out for another five days by myself, no problem." I, gosh, um, you know, the clouds really started to clear around day seven. I mean, it was really hard. Really hard. But there was a moment, probably around day seven, that I had a physical understanding of the cycle of life and death. Until somebody does Vipassana, they won't really get it. But you're watching the birth crescendo and death of sensations. And there was a moment in it where it wasn't my mind understanding, it was my being understanding, again, my connection to everything that has ever come into existence and moved out of existence. And that left me feeling pretty darn good. <laughs> so on, on day 10, I was pretty exuberant to be able to have a conversation again. I mean, what was I, the first thing you said to somebody? I do not remember. Oh, see, I, I think that remember. would be just like... I do not, gilded I remember, it into my mind. Well, I like, remember looking hey, around. how are you? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I remember or, definitely. Or, or, man, I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> well, I mean, we obviously went, you know, we used right. the facilities in the last 10 days. We, we were able to have some conversations with the people who are your teachers or who are your guides. But um, I don't remember. But I went right in. I, I went back to Mumbai. And uh, it, was, it was Diwali. 
and there was smoke everywhere from the home fire, homemade fireworks. And it was such a chaotic cacophony. It was India, you know. And I think that I, I, at that point, I did. I wished that there was a day 11, 12, 13, 14, because I wasn't quite ready for. So that's Diwali. That's the that's festival the festival of lights. Of lights yeah. yeah. Um, and then from where I went there, I went to Mysore. I, I, you don't have to go to India, folks, to do to do vipassana. There is a really comfortable place in Western Massachusetts. I think there's one in West Virginia. That's a little closer. There's definitely one in Thailand that's fantastic. These are not necessarily the same strains of Vipassana. But uh, if anybody wants to do a little bit of research, you can go to Dhamma. That's D-H-A-M-M-A dot org. Dhamma dot org. And they'll uh, tell you about the centers around the world where you can do a 10-day retreat. It doesn't have to be as uncomfortable as it was in Igatpuri, which is the largest Vipassana center in the world. That's where I went. With uh, I was in Dhamma Hall with 450 other women. There was an equal number of men in the neighboring Dhamma Hall. We didn't see them for the time that we were there. And um, it was hot. It was uncomfortable. I was I had a, I got a stomach bug because it was my first week in India. My body wasn't adjusted yet. Uh, well, you certainly didn't have anything, a lack of things to focus on. <laughs> I was just so uncomfortable <laughs> for so much of it. Focus your mind on one thing. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Which one thing? <laughs> oh, man. But you go crazy because there is something called divine madness. It's, it's, it's the discovery, it's the visceral discovery that your mind is not actually in control. That your mind is not the thing. Right? If you choose to connect with it, that there's something beyond the mind. The mind is the perfect onboard computer. Right? And then there's something else. So it's that discovery that can literally drive you out of your mind right? In, in a wonderful way that I think that ultimately we're all seeking, whether or not we're in recognition of that. Uh, and But at the time, I mean, in the process of it, it's, it's almost harrowing because everything that you're familiar with is, is losing, you're losing your grip on it. So I will say, if you can do Vipassana, do Vipassana. If you can't do Vipassana, there are lots of other great resources here in D.C. The Insight Meditation Community of Washington, D.C. is excellent. Uh, Hugh Burney, Tara Brock, they're all local, wonderful teachers. Um, read anything by Mark Epstein. He's an excellent, excellent introduction to the way the mind works. Um, Angel Kyoto Williams, also really beautiful uh, podcast. I, I'd listen to anything on On Being with, with, with Krista Tippett. Mm, yeah, that's one. Fantastic. Yeah. And she was just did, she was just on there. So beautiful. I was like wanted to raise my fist in the air and she really, really felt like a, a sister and sister in the in the practice with her. Is there a is there a um is there a more these are all fantastic resources. Is there any uh shall we say, quote-unquote, traditional yoga literature that you turn to again and again, that would be um, that, that students or the teachers might, might like. So, you so know, Keeping in mind that, the, you know, that, that we've, we've probably read things like the, the, the Gita and we've probably read things like the Yoga Sutras. Is there, is there any, other, <laughs> other, any other works out there that, that, yeah. that people may not be aware of that are like, oh, hey, this has some really good shit in it too? So you know I'm a fan of the Upanishads. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, big fan of the Upanishads. 
Um, a f- really big fan of the Dhammapada, although it's not considered a traditional yogic text. Uh, I mean, those are some of the more ancient, um, but they are pretty excellent resources. For yeah. You can open up them basically anywhere in them and uh, look for wisdom and find it. Um, but I, I find my yoga probably in more untraditional places. Uh, not intentionally, but because I think that you find yoga everywhere you look for it. You do. I mean, I th- I, I, everything is yoga. You've, my students have heard me say that. You know, people people who probably know nothing about yoga who have listened to this podcast just thinks we're, we're a couple of brainwashed idiots just talking like this, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I will say that I do feel like my brain has been washed in a really good way. Right, in, in the best way possible. <laughs> like like cracked open, exposed to some really clean, right. fresh sunlight, you know, like I let the light in, in right. a, that kind of brainwashed way. Um, that's amazing. Well, thanks for joining us today, Julia. My pleasure, Chris. Um, and uh, they're, they're able to find uh, uh, more stuff about you on the, uh, on the Empower Yoga website. EmpowerYogaTherapy.com um, and definitely come check out uh, Yoga Noma sometime this summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, those who don't know, Julia and I run a yoga teacher training program here in Washington, D.C., and some of our most recent graduates are running workshops uh, this throughout summer. The summer. Throughout Saturdays, the summer. free classes from 3 to 4 p.m. on Saturdays throughout the summer. Yeah, so if you're if you're new to yoga, come check that out, because we, we, Yoga Noma really is one of the best places to, to get your introduction. It's a real... Uh, safe and uh, welcoming place. Super beginners friendly, and we we like to keep it that way. Mm-hmm. Join us. All right, Julia. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Namaste. Namaste. <laughs> All right, everybody. Uh, we'll be back with our uh, our next episode uh, next week. Uh, until then, uh, I'm Chris Parkinson, and uh, this is the DC Yoga Podcast. If you have any uh, questions or um, comments, uh, I would like to. Uh, answer those for you. Uh, you can email me at dcyogapodcast at gmail.com. Uh, especially any questions about uh, the concepts that we've talked about today uh, that I can answer on future podcasts. Um, and so we can really start this uh, as a conversation between uh, the audience and uh, the people that I have visiting. would really make this uh, a more interactive and special place to, uh, to learn. So I uh, hope everybody has a great day and uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk again.